0: Well, our sermon passage this morning is from Proverbs 1. Follow along with me. Turn your Bible there, click, swipe, tap, and just camp out in Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7 with me as we work our way through this passage. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, A number of years ago, I taught some college classes. They were in philosophy and. That's an intimidating subject. Most of my students were two year students and so they were going for an associate's degree and they were required to take this course. And, you know, if you're going for a business degree or if you're going to, uh, to, to study medical administration or, or something like that, you know, probably philosophy is the last thing that's on your mind. And so I would often, not often, I would every semester, I would begin by explaining to them a bit about what philosophy was. Now, the class that I primarily taught was called Critical Thinking. And it was philosophy, I believe it was Philosophy 201. So in this philosophy course, I would begin by breaking down what the word philosophy is. Now, those of you guys who know uh, words say, you know, this is a little bit of linguistic trickery. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. But the word philosophy comes from the Greek words philos and sophia and it meant a a love of wisdom love of wisdom now of course you can't know the meaning of a word simply by analyzing its constituent parts that's going to give you a lot of trouble when you start talking about butterflies so it was a little bit unfair but what i wanted to get them to see was that there was something more practical that was embedded in the idea of philosophy. And we would spend time talking about wisdom. Now, of course, modern philosophy has has come a long way and, and it doesn't resonate all that much with the ancient Greek idea of wisdom, let alone the ancient Hebrew idea of wisdom. But the subject matter was critical thinking. How do we think well with the facts that are before us in life, make good decisions to move forward? And that actually, has a lot of resonance with the Hebrew idea of wisdom. And so when we we think about wisdom and we think about critical thinking, what was interesting was that the college required this course because they found that many employers were frustrated that their new and young employees did not have good critical thinking skills. And so the college's thought was to prepare these students better for the, the world out there, the, the business world or the uh, professional world, whatever field they might go into, let's teach them basic critical thinking skills. It's kind of strange to think about that basic critical thinking skills are not something that's common. There is a significant lack of wisdom well, this morning we are beginning a series in the book of Proverbs. It's one of two series that are going to kind of weave back and forth over the summer. We're in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look at the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs this summer, which form sort of an introduction to the book. Usually, when you think of Proverbs, what you're thinking about is the material in chapters 10 through the end. The first nine chapters are a very long prologue to that material. And understanding this material will help you to understand those individual proverbs that come up in the rest of the book. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. As we look at Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, we see a passage that teaches us the essential nature of biblical wisdom. This passage teaches the essential nature of biblical wisdom. And we're going to see how it unpacks that by looking at the contents, the purpose, and the foundation of this book. The contents, purpose, and foundation of this book. Let's look at the contents. The book begins, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, that statement is key to the contents of the book. Let's look at the stated author, Solomon, who wrote most of the contents of this book. I say most of the contents because the last two chapters um, have different authors. Chapter 30 is attributed to Eger, son of Yache, and chapter 31 is attributed to King Lemuel. Now, we don't know who those men were, and it could be that Solomon collected their writings himself and incorporated them into the work. But it wouldn't be uncommon for a book like this in the ancient world to list as the author the one who was primarily responsible for the material, the one who composed most of it, and that certainly was Solomon. But understanding the author is important for understanding what we're reading here. See, Solomon was the third king of Israel. He reigned after his father David, who reigned after King Saul, whom God did not allow to establish a dynasty because of his wickedness. Solomon ruled for about 40 years in the middle of the 10th century BC, so a little under 3,000 years ago. He was renowned for his wisdom. As a young king, king, the Lord famously spoke to him in a dream and offered to bless him for his faithfulness. And Solomon said, and you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 4, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people." So the Lord gave Solomon that discerning mind that he might be a good steward of God's people as he had asked. He was so well known for his wisdom that dignitaries and royals across the ancient Near East sought him out. And he used that wisdom to prosper the nation of Israel tremendously to say nothing of how much he prospered himself. Now, archaeological findings have taught us that wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs... Was common in the ancient world from long before Solomon's day. In particular, we have examples of other kings recording their acquired wisdom for the benefit of the sons who would rule after them. So as we read the book of Proverbs, we see these repeated references to my son or my sons. The Proverbs is different in two key ways, and these two differences help us to understand and apply the book. First, Based on the custom of other kings, we might have expected Solomon to address this book to his firstborn son, Rehoboam. But he doesn't do that. By leaving the references to a son generic, the flavor of the book becomes much more egalitarian. Anyone can pick up this book and apply it. It's not merely meant for king's sons. That said, it's it's a reminder that this book was designed to be eminently practical, In order to be successful in life's endeavors, let alone rule a nation, one ought to internalize the principles and teachings of this book. These were sufficient for guiding a nation, so they are certainly good for running a business, or leading a household, or even shepherding a church. Second, Proverbs is different because its wisdom is in line with the ethics that God demands for his people. Solomon was not a perfect man. In fact, Solomon, who was renowned for his wisdom, may have died a fool because despite that understanding mind that God gave him, he followed his own worldly lusts nearly to his own destruction. Yet the same Solomon was said in his early years to love the Lord. And it's impossible to understand this book apart from a devotion to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Last year, Ryan, Andrew, Daniel, and I traveled to Washington for a conference at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And that Sunday, the pastor, Mark Dever, was preaching a series on the Ten Commandments as they showed up and as they were taught in the book of Proverbs. Now, that would be an impossible series of messages to preach, except that the ethics that God had demanded for his people are, in fact, woven deeply through the entire book. So, This is a book that is deeply wed to the religious revelation of Israel. And we'll say more about that later. Now all of this is recorded for us according to verse one in Proverbs. The Hebrew word here is mashal. And its meaning overlaps the English word proverb but it's probably, no, it definitely is um, a bit broader. We think of a proverb as a pithy aphorism, a generally true and memorable saying. Now, lots of this book fits that description, but not all of it. Trying to force everything into that category will cause you to misinterpret things or misunderstand things. One of the key differences that Bruce Walkey has noted is that English proverbs have popular appeal. But a biblical mashal holds appeal among people who fear the Lord. Put together, this short verse clues us in that what we're going to encounter in this book is a type of training that was generally aimed at the young that would prepare them to successfully navigate the challenges of life but would ultimately only be truly acceptable to those who follow the God of Israel. But that leads us to a discussion of the purposes of this book. Now, I said the book was designed to prepare younger individuals to navigate life, which is a purpose statement. But how do Proverbs do that? So they have some sort of intermediate or subordinate purposes that lead to that goal. And and those are found in verses two through six. And they give us five distinct purpose statements that explain how the Proverbs do this work. Now, if you've never noticed, Proverbs is a book of poetry, and that affects how it communicates these truths. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, except to touch on things here and there in this series, but in case you weren't aware, it's helpful to know that it's poetry, and it might be in places repetitive or metrical or um, artsy-fartsy instead of straightforward. This is not paragraphs. Now, the opening lines of poetry are these, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. And it's our first purpose statement. Some have suggested that these lines are a summary statement, and they might be because every single word in here is absolutely laden with meaning. But the one that stands out most of all is probably that first one, wisdom. I've said something about that already. Variations on this word appear over 100 times in the book of Proverbs. And so we better say a little bit more. What is wisdom? In English, we tend to think of wisdom as discernment. It's a mental ability to know what's up. Blue-collar wisdom is called street smarts. And it's true. We we, we tend to distinguish, at least in America, between wisdom and learning. Those are different categories for us. We distinguish between street smarts and book smarts. We think of wisdom as something that is gained through observation and experience, not something picked up in a classroom or a book, unless it's a very old and obscure book. But biblical wisdom is different. Solomon would certainly agree that experience and observation can lead to wisdom. And there's much in this book that would commend that strategy. But biblical wisdom cannot be divorced from more traditional learning either. The Bible speaks of wisdom as something possessed by artisans and craftsmen, prophets and leaders. So a short definition of wisdom might be this, skillfully applied knowledge. Wisdom is skillfully applied knowledge. And so wisdom requires three things. First, it requires knowledge. There must be a knowledge base on which to operate. Words having to do with knowledge appear three times in this little passage and over 70 in the book of Proverbs. Second, wisdom requires skill or mastery. It's not just necessary to know things. One must, must also have the skill to bring to bear on that knowledge. Last year, when Sarah and I repainted our walls, I went to town on repairing all the cracks and tears and dings and dents in our drywall. And I watched a ton of YouTube videos and gained a lot of knowledge but there was a necessary skill I didn't immediately have after watching those videos. Some parts of my walls look infinitely better than others because as I went, I developed my skill. There are a couple places where there were huge issues that you'd never know I repaired because of how good they look. I'm proud of those there are other parts that bother me almost every day because I know they're there and my skill wasn't quite up to par. So there is a difference between knowledge and skill and we need both. But here's the third thing that biblical wisdom requires. It's application. Biblical wisdom does not merely exist in the head. The idea of a wise man sitting on his porch dispensing aphorisms to the young men who walk by just isn't the biblical picture of wisdom. And that's, by the way, why Solomon, despite, despite having an understanding mind and clearly great skill, lived out most of his last years as a fool, He did not skillfully apply his knowledge to his circumstances, but allowed the pleasures and cares of this world to rule over him. Likewise, you can be greatly skilled or highly knowledgeable or both and still be a fool if you fail to apply these resources to your life. Wisdom is ultimately about successful living. It won't necessarily be successful in the ways the world appreciates, although sometimes it is for reasons the world does not understand, but it is living that is successful in the eyes of God. This is a key reason why wisdom is to be developed in the young. If you set out on a wise path in your youth, it can reap a bounty down the road. If you walk the path of a fool early on, well, it still behooves you to gain wisdom, but you certainly won't have the same advantages. Wisdom has a certain exponential property, doesn't it? My, my wife Sarah worked with my in-laws yesterday to get our garden planted, and, and they included a healthy number of tomato plants. You know, I, I looked it up, one Roma tomato seed can give you a plant that sprouts as many as 200 tomatoes. And each of those tomatoes might have 30 seeds. That's 6,000 seeds. Now, if you successfully planted each of those 6,000 seeds, the next year you'd have 36 million. And the next year, 216 billion. And the next year, 1.296 quadrillion. Uh, Now, of course, not every plant is that healthy and not every seed grows. Life isn't perfect like that. But wisdom gives you a lot of opportunities for godly success so the goal of these Proverbs is to know this wisdom but also instruction also instruction it says this isn't the instruction of a classroom but it's the instruction of correction one of the goals of this book is to be a disciplinary correction on your life none of this None of us like correction. We don't like to hear we're on the wrong path. But let me suggest that this should be taken as an encouragement. You see, the fact that this book has a corrective function means that it's not too late. If you've made mistakes in your life, you don't need to throw in the towel and give up. You can receive correction and move on. Although discipline can be painful, it ultimately means that there is hope. The third purpose that's listed here is to understand words of insight. There's a play on words here that's, this word understand and this word insight, they come from the same root. And and so some things get lost, poetry from one language doesn't translate as well as we'd like to another. But the idea here is not mere comprehension one commentator likens it to the saying of isaiah and, and jesus that some people would see but not perceive they would hear but not understand you can know something without it penetrating deep into your soul and changing how you think and what is it we need to deeply comprehend well words or sayings that are produced from this well of deep understanding messages that come from the wise, our shepherds and teachers and tutors and parents. These Proverbs have been carefully cataloged and compiled to help you have that insight. The next lines in verse 3 give us another purpose for the book of Proverbs, to, re- to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. The word receive is correct. But you might hear that as a passive activity, waiting for someone to impart something to you. But the idea is, is, is active, and so I want you to hear receive with an active sense. The instruction is present, and it's there, and you've got to reach out and take it, accept it, acquire it, The instruction in mind here is that idea of corrective instruction that we just spoke about. And we have this piling on of the same words over and over again that continues to drive home the thrust of this short passage that this is important, it matters. But here our translation has instruction in wise dealing. The idea behind wise dealing probably overlaps with the idea of wisdom quite a bit. Many translations opt for something like prudence. The idea is like a careful consideration of one's dealings. And Solomon says that this type of wise dealing is the kind that produces righteousness, justice, and equity. Here we see that wisdom, the goal of Proverbs, is highly ethical. Righteousness and justice and equity in this context probably have a lot of overlap, being upright and unwaveringly fair in all of your dealings before God and man. this does not come naturally. It has to be acquired. Our world believes, have you noticed that our, our world believes that what matters is that our intentions are true? He means well her heart was in the right place. It's thought that if we mean well, our actions are of secondary consequence. But here's the trouble with that. People get hurt by good intentions. They get burned by your good thoughts. A great deal of evil is done by those who are not acting evilly. And that's a concept that our world struggles with very much. In the last couple of weeks, we have been scandalized again by what seems to be another senseless murder of an African American at the hands of a, a white individual holding some level of power over him. Of course, I speak of the shooting of Ahmed Arbery. Arbery, a black man, was jogging through a Georgia neighborhood in February when two or three white neighbors began to follow him and attempted to get him to stop. They were armed with guns. Arbery apparently did not heed their instructions, and why would he? They weren't officers of the law. They were just a couple of guys with weapons barking orders at him. Eventually, Arbery turns toward the gunmen and seems to engage them. A struggle ensues, and Arbery is shot to death before video emerged which shocked our nation the story of the gunman was that Arbery was suspicious and fit the description of someone who committed some recent crimes and so they followed him and after the video came out we learned that one of the men worked for the local DA's office and so the narrative started to unravel and three men now have been charged with murder Now, personally, it is unfathomable to me that race did not play a role in this shooting. But just for a moment, let's give the benefit of the doubt that these men honestly believed that Ahmed Arbery was a criminal. And they honestly believed that they were trying to protect their neighbors and their neighborhood. And all of this was a tragic action. If that was true, It would not change the fact that a grave and grievous evil still resulted. A man was unjustly condemned to death without trial or even evidence of a crime. Even if we take that extreme position and and the accused will get their day in court, Ahmed Arbery did not receive justice and equity that day. Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan chose a course of action that brought about injustice and inequity. Their actions were devoid of wise dealing, the prudence that would have resulted in a different outcome. And that's the best case scenario. Now, not all folly, of course, is criminal. But it is no surprise that folly often deprives a person of fair treatment. I'd be willing to bet that almost everyone listening to me can remember a time they were wounded deeply by someone who thought they were acting righteously or simply was unaware that their actions had personal consequences for others. Of course, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. To truly do that. We need more than just compassionate hearts. We need wisdom. We need this book. The next purpose, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. This is a classic Hebrew couplet where one line reiterates and emphasizes the other line so that they mutually interpret each other. Prudence and knowledge and discretion are here treated as closely related, so are simple and youth. Simple is in the sense of simpleton or naive or even gullible. Equality we all have as youths, and we hopefully begin to lose that as we age. Of course, we've all known simpletons who are old, and we've probably known our share of fairly savvy youths. But we understand the correction the connection and, and by the way don't push this word youth too far it easily refers to an adolescent or a young adult up to at least 30 years old in biblical accounts so a lot of you who are listening yeah. We have a couple of new concepts in this couplet, though, that are worth considering. Prudence here is probably not the best translation. The Christian standard Bible has shrewdness, which I think is much more on the mark. But I can understand the uncomfortableness with translating something like shrewdness. It's a certain scheming quality. And in our culture, we generally frown upon it. But we also understand its benefits it's it's that ability to meet your goals with your wits of course it can be used for evil purposes but in proverbs it's often a very neutral or positive term it's it's desirable for good ends the wise and mature person will have the ability to to plot out a course see the troubles navigate the obstacles toward the goal and it's very similar to discretion here. that where discretion is, is sort of the internal and unrevealed planning that leaders often must do. They may not show all their cards because they're attempting, not because they're attempting to hide something per se, but they understand that not everyone needs to know everything right now. In fact, it might make things worse if everybody knows everything right now again, it's a trait that in the wrong hands could be used for evil, but in the hands of a wise individual can lead to great success and a blessing not just for themselves, but for all of those in their sphere of influence. That one's a particularly hard one for me. I, I, I try to be in, an open book, and I just I just want to throw my cards on the table. And, and I'm learning through some difficult lessons that sometimes it's, it is best, it's wise to just hold things to the vest, not because we're trying to be secretive or or, or manipulative but because it's the best way of securing the best outcome for the most people and so that one can be a tough one for us and it can be one that we need to gain then in verse 5 we have a sort of parenthetical remark it's it's set off by M dashes or set off by parentheses in many translations because it interrupts the train of thoughts of these purpose statements Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. It's a plea to the reader. It's an ironic plea, in a way, because Solomon is calling on the wise and those with understanding to pay attention, but he's writing a book for those who are, by definition, lacking wisdom and understanding, and they need it. But it makes sense if you think about it because wisdom isn't ones and zeros. It's not an on off switch. It's, it's not something you either have or you don't have. It comes in gradations, doesn't it? It's something that we have more of today than yesterday, we hope, and, and more tomorrow than we had today. Even the most naive have a little bit of wisdom, and they demonstrate wisdom by seeking more of it. It's the nature of the wise, in general, to seek wisdom. It's the nature of the understanding to gain more understanding. And so this book is for all of us. Whatever smidge of wisdom you have, apply it to grab a hold of more. Solomon calls out at the top of this book, let the wise hear an increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. Well, Solomon finishes with one more purpose, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. There's a subtlety to this statement. On one hand, Solomon has recorded the book of Proverbs so that you and I can understand a proverb. And the other terms are roughly synonymous. Your thought then might be, well, that's not helpful. Solomon you want me to learn so that I can learn thanks for nothing but here's what I think he's getting at wisdom is not a circle it's a spiral it's impossible to know where you're going to get on and sometimes getting on the spiral is the hardest part but the inevitable result of getting into a spiral is that you move closer and closer to the center the bullseye A little wisdom leads to greater understanding. And that greater understanding leads to more wisdom. And that leads to more understanding, which leads to more wisdom. And so forth and so on. Solomon isn't trying to exhaust all wisdom in this one book. Instead, he's giving us a platform on which we can acquire even more wisdom and learn from other teachers and other guides along the way. To do that, we need a solid foundation. So these are the five immediate purposes of the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of overlap in them, but this piling on of synonyms and repetition of key ideas serves a powerful function. It's as if across 3,000 years and some 9,600 miles, King Solomon is pleading with me and with you, you need wisdom. Do not neglect this. It is your very life I beg of you, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Finally, we turn to the foundation of this book, and it's summed up this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord of Yahweh. What does it mean? Yahweh is God's covenantal name, the name that he revealed to Moses and to the Israelites, his people. The God of creation is specially revealed to his people. He is a speaking God. He's a communicating God who makes himself known. Uh, For this reason, maybe it's no surprise that the fear of the Lord Is almost synonymous with the word of the Lord in Psalm 19. So there's this ethical dimension. We do what is right, we listen to and obey and follow God's word, His law. Not because we're told to, not because there's an authority figure watching over us. All of us can be obedient our parents when our parents are watching us. All of us can be obedient to the government when we see on ways that there's a speed trap up ahead. We demonstrate our obedience and our fear of Yahweh when we do what's right because we know that He is always watching us, and he is the one that we are ultimately concerned about. At the same time, that fear is also a healthy respect that yields to a deep and abiding affection. So in Deuteronomy, the fear of Yahweh is almost synonymous with the love of Yahweh. And so we have these two poles of fear Love and obedience. Both of them are born out of a knowledge of the one true God who has revealed himself. This is the relational or emotional dimension. Our hearts ought to be stirred with affection for Yahweh. This, Solomon says, is the beginning of knowledge. Beginning could mean the the first bit of knowledge or wisdom that we get, the first in order, or it could be the first principle, the foundational idea. And, And both are probably implied here. Bruce Waltke puts it this way, what the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. In other words, if you want to understand and apply this book, or even wisdom more broadly, it starts with the fear of the Lord. But again, I wanna reiterate, this is not just God whom we must fear. We say, I'm gonna put the fear of God into you. Well, that's not enough. Because this is not a generic deity or a higher power. This is Yahweh. That's what those small caps in your Bible indicate when you see that capital L and like a small capital O-R-D. And that's what that indicates. That this is the name of God. And so unless you've encountered this God in his revelation, unless you know him and love him as the God of creation, as Yahweh, then you are ultimately only a fool. But God has chosen to make himself known. He can be known. In fact, it's, it's the, one of the defining characteristics of the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, is that he is a God who makes himself known, that he refuses to leave himself and this world and us without a witness to him. He reveals himself. And ultimately, in this last age, He's revealed Him especially in a person. And so in John chapter 1, we can read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and and truth for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known Jesus Christ, the one who is elsewhere called the exact representation of God's being, the image of God. This Jesus Christ has revealed God to us. Though our eyes were darkened because we were dwelling in our own sin, we had turned against God and rebelled against him. Yet Jesus came. He was God in the flesh. He came and dwelt and lived among us that he might reveal God to us so that we who were in the dark might be enlightened to know who God is and what he is like. And not only that, but Jesus made God known, by eliminating that gulf of sin that stood between us and God. These, these wrong things that we all know that we have done that are an infinitely great insult against an infinitely great God. Jesus died on the cross, a perfect person. And so an infinite injustice was done to him so that infinite grace can be offered to all who come to him. Do you want wisdom? Do you want biblical knowledge for for life's success? Well, it begins first and foremost foundationally in knowing the God of creation. As he has revealed himself. And he has revealed himself most perfectly and explicitly in the person of Jesus Christ. You must go to him. You must believe who he is. Turn from your old way of life. Accept what he did on the cross for your sins, and he will forgive you. And he will put you back in the right relationship with God. And he will give you his spirit to empower you. And he will allow you to gain wisdom. And the greatest treasure of wisdom is knowing him. That's where it all begins. So while Proverbs may read like a book with a lot of pithy sayings in it from time to time, those pithy statements cannot be divorced from this. Verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you separate any of those statements from there, you've you've lost the plot because all wisdom comes first from knowing Jesus Christ Christ. Pray that you would know him and that you would find wisdom. We desperately need wisdom, Christian. You need wisdom. Christ did not buy you and bring you into the kingdom of God for you to live as a gullible, foolish simpleton, He didn't do that. We are going to reign with him. That is the promise of Scripture. We are going to reign with Christ. And if we're going to reign with Christ, then we need a whole lot of wisdom. We best start getting it now. It's important, it matters. Unchristian, unchristian, unbeliever out there. Or you who think that you have come to Christ but you have not ever truly surrendered yourself to Him, you're a fool. You're a fool. But there's hope, there's good news for you. Because there's corrective power in wisdom. And that means you can be put back on the right course. And hopefully these verses, Proverbs 1, you didn't think you were going to read Proverbs and, and and get good news of grace and hope, did you? But there is good news of grace and hope here in Proverbs. There's a reminder that you can turn back now. You can go on a different course. You can flee to the God of the universe, to Jesus, his only son, and you can find redemption a new life and hope, I pray that you would.